Hi and welcome to the DMBA podcast where we share business confidence for designers. My name is Alan. I am a business designer and founder of the DMBA. In this episode, I spoke with Aaron Walter, who is a senior product and design lead at Resolve to Save Lives. He explores how design and technology can help fight COVID-19. And formerly, he was the VP of Content and Envision, drawing upon 20 years of experience running product teams and teaching design to help companies enact design best practices. Aaron also founded UX Practice at MailChimp and helped grow the product from a few thousand users to more than 10 million users. Aaron is also an author of a phenomenal book, which we will cover in the podcast. So the book is titled Designing for Emotion, and it explores the power of design when applying to creating emotionally engaging products and experiences. In this episode, you'll also hear that we need some business confidence to make the case for emotional design. And if that's what you're looking for, I'd like to invite you to our seven-day mini-MBA, which is basically a free email course. And over the course of seven days, you receive seven emails, and each of these emails teaches you a fundamental business concept relevant for designers. So to subscribe to the mini-MBA, head over to d.mba slash mini. And now let's dive into the chat with Aaron. Aaron, thanks for coming onto the show. I'd love to begin with your latest project. So you recently started or co-started a podcast called Reconsidering, which explores, explores how to make a life while also making a living. By the way, very nice tagline. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> glad you like that. I mean, let's first of all, I'm just interested in what made you co-host and co-create this podcast which is not your only podcast that you're hosting, right? So it had to be something that really drawn you into right. it. Yeah, so I, I co-host two podcasts. One is the Design Better podcast. Um, and for this audience, it's probably, you know, that's that's the, the uh, uh, content or topics that are, are very relevant. We talk with leaders uh, in the design space um, and uh, kind of explore the creative process. But Reconsidering is... Um, it's a new podcast that I recently started with my friends Meredith Black, who used to run Design Ops at Pinterest, and Bob Baxley, who was also at uh, Pinterest as head of design for a while and was at Apple um, for a very long time. Um, and Bob and I had been talking for a few years. I think we started talking back in 2016. Um, he read something I had published and just kind of sent me an email and said, hey, I enjoyed that. Uh, Want to hop on a call and talk. And one, th- one thing led to another in our conversations, and we started to just talk about life. Like, how do you live a good life, a satisfying life? Um, because I think for, for many of us that, that have been through this pandemic, it's been this reframing and um, where we start to think about work. And Bob and I were talking about work things, and work occupies so much of our life. Um, it it can cloud our vision, cloud our view of what um, what we want to do um, every day, how we want to, who we want to spend our time with, and what we want to um, direct our energies towards. And so, the, reconsidering is really about that. It's about um, what is good work? What is meaningful work? 
Um, how do we, we often talk about work-life balance, but how do we live a more integrated life where, mm-hmm. you know, for, for those of us living through the pandemic, which is everybody, um, work and life got squished into one building. And that really helped reframe it that um, they're not separate things. And we're not two separate people. We are one person existing in different spaces. And could we live a more integrated, uh, more fulfilling life by by thinking about that? So we've had uh, a number of great guests on the show already. Um, we looked at uh, the great resignation, why so many people are quitting their jobs and what are they doing. Um, we, uh, we've just had a show come out uh, about listening and how do we, um, how might we have better relationships with the people that we love the most or people that we want to get to know and maybe have career growth, personal growth by cultivating that skill? Because it is a skill. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, either you're a good listener or a bad listener. Um, so we, we explore a lot of different topics and I really love it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret here. The reason why I like podcasting is because I'm curious. I'm just trying to learn, um, you know, about lots of different things. And podcasting is an excuse to talk to people who know something I don't and ask them questions. And uh, I also like the fact that I can share that with everybody. Yeah, I think podcasting is one of those like hacks, like career hacks, where you get to speak to people maybe that otherwise they wouldn't take time for you. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. I you totally just send agree. them an email and say, hey, do you want to come up on my podcast? Like most people say yes. And if you just, hey, can I grab a coffee with you? Which is what maybe an advice five years ago was that people don't have mm-hmm. time for this anymore. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that one of the topics that you covered was was also the great resignation. Uh, so mm-hmm. And that you kind of dug deep into the reasons behind that and what are people doing these days. So can you tell us more about that? So why why is this happening and what are people doing when they resign? So I think there are a number of different reasons that people are resigning. Um, I think there are, there are a lot of people who might have been, you know, we, we label essential work. Um, that is in the service industries, um, home care, uh, these these sorts of jobs. Um, where there was just this realization that um, even though we label that work as essential, um, we don't pay and treat um, these workers as as if they're essential. Um, so it feels like uh, it's it's unfair, it's unequal, um, it's not fulfilling, and it's not sustainable. Um, the sustainable part, I think, is what really kind. Of, came to the forefront during the pandemic is like, I can't continue to put this much of my life's energy into this work mm-hmm. for this amount of pay and, and, and make a living. Um, there are also people who have been doing work that um, there's, there's always in disengagement, you know, where people are like, I don't really love what I'm doing, but it's a paycheck. It's okay. And when the pandemic hit, there's a lot of fear and uh, just reflecting like, oh my God, what's going to happen? The future feels very uncertain. Mm-hmm. And and I've been wasting my time doing something that I'm not excited about, uh, that is actively like making me depressed. It's taking too much out of me um, and not returning something 
that's proportional. And then there are there's another group of people who uh, the the markets were really. We I don't think we could have predicted that the markets would do so well yeah. um, during the pandemic. They fell off a cliff at the beginning, and then they marched up uh, in almost an, uh, what seems like an unstoppable um, gain. Mm -hmm. And so people who were on the edge of retirement, like a little bit further on in their career, um, saw like their retirement savings go up and said, I think I'm going to pull the plug early and get out so I have more time. But here's here's the leveling thing, the thread between these three different um, scenarios I just outlined, circumstances, is that the pandemic brought our focus to our time because we can always go make more money. Um, even if you don't feel like super confident in your career or you're just building your career, one way or another, you can find a way to make more money. You can't find a way to make more time. Time is, is our enemy. Um, and so the, the pandemic for so many people uh, caused us to reflect on how we spend our time and how we do that better. Uh, which takes us back to the podcast. That is, that's a, that's a kind of the, the, the central platform of those conversations is how might I use my time more effectively to, um, you know, have, have a sense of satisfaction in life. So, so what are people doing instead? So you said that some just uh, went into retirement. What about the others? Yeah, so um, on the show, we talked to Vipula Gandhi, who's at uh, Gallup, and they did a pretty significant study. Um, some people, it, it, and again, this is one of those things, like it's not just one thing. I asked Vipula if uh, her research showed that people were switching industries altogether. And in, in some cases, it, it is. You know, people are switching, like I could potentially go back to school or I could try something different, um, start a new job. This is actually a, a theme that we've seen from past, um, not pandemics, but economic downturns when people lose their jobs, uh, either voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, in those moments of crisis, it causes a lot of people just to take the leap to be an entrepreneur um, to start a business, that idea that I had in the back of my mind that I could, you know, maybe push that forward. Mm. Um, and I think in the tech and, and design space, software space, a lot of people are jumping to different types of work. So you have folks who are disenchanted with the mission of the company or the behavior of the company. So you see companies like Facebook. Uh, their brand has uh, taken a significant hit over the past few years for, in my humble opinion, very, very good reason. Um, and people have departed that. Um, also, you know, like living in the San Francisco Bay Area where it's so expensive, um, some people I spoke with, um, when, when they had the opportunity to be remote, they moved back to Minnesota to be closer to family because, you know, they just had a baby. Yeah. Um, and they'd like the grandparents to be involved. And I, in those circumstances, I asked these people like, well, are you still going to be able to keep your job in the Bay Area? And they're like, I don't know, but this is what I'm doing. So that reflection on what's important, clarity on values, and then realigning, um, 
your your actions to those values um, caused a lot of people to jump um, either to you know a different location where they might find a different job. Uh, maybe it's not at one of the marquee companies, but it's still like a really great job. Mm. Um, and in some circumstances, people who were kind of noodling in the back of their mind of like, maybe I should start a business. Maybe I should go into this different direction. Um, one very close friend of mine just left uh, a, a really top job at a major corporation because it just was unsustainable work. And he jumped to nothing. He chose, like, I'm just going to take a break. I've got enough runway. I need to hit the reset button. So that's something that I see a lot of people doing too. Yeah, there's a lot of this advice that before you leave your job, you should know what you will work on next, which I think is not always the best advice because for some people, they need this headspace to really figure out what the next place is. Um so I think what you, your friend does or did, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a great idea for some people who have enough runway and maybe just want to take some time to really reconnect with themselves and find what the next thing is. So this is, I think, is an important lesson, you know, going through a situation like this. Um, there's a, a, a guy named J.L. Collins. He wrote a great book called The Simple Path to Wealth. And one of the principles in his book, uh, he said, you should always have some FU money. <laughs> and that is just like, you don't have to have a ton of money to like quit forever. But if, if you were really just unsatisfied with your work, um, maybe you have a terrible manager. Uh, maybe you just feel bored and disengaged. Maybe you're not growing. Um, or maybe you want to take a leap and try something totally different. If you have some FU money, um, to get you through three to six months, that would give you the space to be able to make those decisions the way that you would like to make those decisions instead of somebody else kind of running your life. So you're not in that trap. Um, I think that is, that. I hope people take that as a lesson from the pandemic. I think that's a great point. And frankly, this is how I've been trying to run my personal finances. To have For me, it was like 12 months just to be on the safe side. <laughs> However, oh, that's great. the one thing that I'm still unsure about is FU money, and maybe you can you can share also your perspective on this, is how does F, FU money um, relate to the debt? There are two ways to look at it. One is I should be debt-free and have mm -hmm. FU money, or I should, if I have some debt, then at least I need to have six, or as, as you said, three to six months of uh, this money covering also the debt. So... How do you see this relationship between having maybe a mortgage? How does that play into the FU money? So uh, it's okay to have some debt. I think, you know, that that's kind of the reality for a lot of people. And usually that is in a home. Uh, and basically, FU money can, um, it, it should uh, cover your monthly needs. So, cover your bills, your expenses. And to do that calculation, you actually have to track your spending and uh, be very clear about that. Um, not that this is a personal finance podcast, <laughs> but there's a great tool called YNAB, You Need a Budget. That is a really lovely tool for keeping track of, of your spending. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also need to be able to have enough money in that FU money account 
to service your debt. So is that three months? Is that six months? Is that 12 months? That's sort of the individual's discretion. But um, if you can service it in that amount of time, that's great. That's you, you have to have that. Otherwise, you don't really have that control. Yeah, that's that's where I also ended up with uh, was this idea that I, for a long time, I just thought that that in general is, is not the way to go. Um, but I came around this also. So I, I went in the same way, like, yeah, the FU money, so this money on the side should also cover the debt. And then you have this safety net, at least psychologically, so you can do different things and you can take different decisions. And as you said before, if you're not really mission-wise aligned with the company you're working for, you have this you know, space to explore something else. There's another thing that happens with that I just want to point out is that when you have that safety, it changes the way you work. Yeah. changes the way you show up at work that in a meeting where people are collectively expressing a view that you don't agree with, you are more likely to speak up and say, actually, I have a different perspective. Um, you're more likely to, um, you know, go against the grain a little bit and, um, you know, bring all of your talents to bear because you don't have to be afraid if I speak up too much or I take a risk on this project Mm -hmm. that I'll lose my job and then I'm going to be in financial ruin Mm -hmm. because you've got a safety net there to use your, your term. So I think Mm -hmm. that that's a powerful way. Um, uh, it's a better way to live instead of living in fear, you live in, in your power. Mm. It's all about emotions in the end, right? Well, I think that's a key, key factor there. (laughs) And it's also a great segue to the next topic I wanted to ask you about, which is you wrote this magnificent book called Designing for Emotion. Um, so if if you haven't picked it up yet, uh, definitely have a look at it. It's in the A Book Apart um, collection, a great collection for, for every designer, for all the books. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, first, maybe let's just unpack what emotional design is for those who haven't heard about it. And why should designers even care? Because when I heard about emotional design and when I went through the book, my first reaction was, don't most designers already do this? They do. Um, But I think that um, having a name for it, a phrase that we can refer to, Mm -hmm. it allows us to be more precise in our language and our craft. Mm -hmm. So if we were to think about the history of design, architecture, for example, which has been around for tens of thousands of years. I think Stonehenge was 12,000 BC. We are closer temporarily uh, to the Romans than the Romans are to those who who built Stonehenge. Uh, That is architecture, that's design, and that is designed to really shape emotion and community. We we don't know exactly what it was shaping, but today it still shapes emotion. That's Mm -hmm. a key part of that. Industrial design, which is not as old, but, you know, uh, 200 to 250 years old. Industrial design, these objects that we have relationships with in the the modern era. Uh, People used to not have as many objects as we do today. If I asked you to count how many objects you have that you own, it'd be just, you couldn't do it. Whereas like a couple hundred years ago, you could actually count it and say, you know, I've got 85 things that I own. And my my net worth, um, uh, and then modern day, you know, we're designing software that people are interacting with. 
So if we look at all three of these disciplines, uh, what is in common is that the things that we make shape our behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, they empower us to do something. It's a tool that's practical, solves a problem. But in turn, they also we have this relationship with them, and they shape our behavior. Um, Stonehenge shapes our behavior in that you know how we move through it, how we respond to it at a certain point in time in the year uh, where we feel this sense of awe and respect, and there's something bigger. A church does something does does that as well. Even you know the Tate Modern, if you know in in London. You go into that space, and it's going to shape how you move through. And the objects that we own, I have some lovely handmade objects that that I own, um, a, a knife that I use all the time. And every time I use it, it makes me feel a certain way. It makes me feel, um, it makes me feel joy. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love beautiful objects. Don't we all love beautiful <laughs> objects? Which which one is it? The knife. The knife is uh, made by two guys outside of not too far from where i live mm-hmm. uh it's their their company is called bloodroot um and it's just two people who are making these knives that are made from reclaimed steel so mine is made from a 1945 uh volkswagen suspension spring wow uh, a piece of wood from a clarinet factory in paris and a piece of burled maple from my my hometown, Athens, Georgia. Nice. But it's a lovely object. It's their story and meaning. Yeah, yeah. It reminds so me. So just yeah, no, just I, I just got hung up on the knife because I also have a knife that I love. <laughs> it's a Japanese knife, and every time I take it, I just like, you know, it's a special almost occasion when I use it. So I know exactly what you're talking about, and I only use this knife for certain things, and it's almost like a ritual. Yeah, so I totally get you. So this is a long-winded response to your original question of like, don't designers already do this? They do. Like what we make shapes our behavior. And there's this long human history of doing that. But what I saw um, for a number of years is that software was designed in a very functional way, mm-hmm. which is great. You know, we want functional software. That's why we and you know build companies uh, to solve problems for other people. And they that creates value and they want to um, you know, pay us for that. But if you really, really want to create value, you change the human experience by shaping emotion, by mm-hmm. helping people mitigate fear, reduce stress, um, feel a sense of joy, feel a sense of empowerment or competence. And we can do that in so many different ways with software or anything that we design. By naming it specifically, having a phrase, emotional design, we can be more cognizant of that and we can start to um, identify techniques and connect that to principles of psychology and and, and be intentional. Mm. Can we bring it to life with one example? So how does emotional design well executed in software look like? So to bring this back to the pandemic, I want to give you an example um, of fear because it's something in the past year, a lot of people felt a sense of fear, especially March and April Um, you know, we had uncertainty about supply chain and we're still feeling that today. We had uncertainty just about like safety and going out. Will kids be able to go to school? And on top of that, if you had any money invested, you saw your money just plummet because the markets dropped so precipitously about 20, uh, to 25%, if I remember correctly. 
So there's a company called Wealthsimple, wealthsimple.com. It's an automated investing company. Um, and I talked to their chief design officer, who's a co-founder, his name's Rudy Adler, um, about what they're doing. It, in many ways, I think they have a lot of headwinds because banking um, and investing, there's a lot of emotion built up in that, a lot of fear, a lot of mistrust. Banks have the, a long history of taking advantage of people and recent history and further back. Um, and so they they recognize this and they try to address some of those fears. If you look at the site, wealthsimple.com, it's a beautiful site. It and is. it uses something called the primacy effect. Um, primacy effect is our first impressions uh, shape our perceptions. So when we see uh, a person who is maybe well-dressed um, and they come into uh, an interview, that sets an impression of like, hey, this person is taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, if they weren't dressed uh for, for the moment, we, we might have a different impression. So well, simple, the way that their site is designed, which one a Webby, there's some emotional design in that. But when you get into the product, um, the dashboard, a lot of uh, financial software shows you a very narrow, like 90-day timeline. Here's your portfolio the past 90 days. And if you go from February of 2020 to March of 2020 or April, uh, February was a high. We had hit a market high. And then by April, we had dropped about 20%. And if you only saw 90 days, you're having a heart attack. You feel like the whole world is falling apart. And uh, not only are you afraid for, for your safety you know, and, and the world's safety, but you're also uh, financially insecure. You feel that way. Uh, but if you zoom out to like four years, you see like, okay, there's a dip but it's part of a slope that is up and to the right. And so that's something that Wellsimple does. It's a simple thing. Uh, They know that uh, people have a lot of fear around money. Markets are volatile. Sooner or later, they will drop. And when that happens, you need to shape behavior. So show a broader view so you can see you haven't just fallen into the Grand Canyon. It's a pothole. It's not good, but it does go up historically up and to the right. And that mitigates some of that fear because when people have fear, that drives action. And the action is to sell at the bottom. And then you turn theoretical losses into actual losses, which is a real problem. What are the most, um, what are one of the best emotions that you should or you can take as a starting point to design around? Because in finance, yeah, fear is probably, and greed are probably like the top two to design for. But if I'm not working in the fintech, I may be dealing with some other things. So what, like, what, are, what are my starting points when it comes to designing for X? Yeah. So I often tell people to start with a moment. What is the moment in your product? With Airbnb, uh, the moment is when a person checks in to their their space. Um, Leading up to that, there was booking, there was maybe some conversation back and forth between guest and host. Um, They looked at the photos, the price they booked, they arrive, and does it meet their expectations? So for Airbnb, that's like a very key moment to make that um, go well. 
So with the software design, what they do is they send lots of reminders to the, the host to be prepared. Um, they make it easy to automate directions or like how to check in, that sort of thing. There's, there's a bunch of stuff that they do to design for that moment. So identifying your moment, um, your peak or your valley moment. And if anyone's done a journey map, you've probably seen that. This, this is a peak moment. This is a valley moment. Uh, valley moment when things are really bad. Uh, peak moment when things are really good. Uh, usually with valley moments, we're just trying to um, bring those back up to a, a kind of a satisfactory line at least. Mm-hmm. Um, it's This is when a person gets lost or confused or they have a sense of fear, like the markets fell off a cliff, or I checked into my Airbnb and it's not what I expected. So finding that moment and designing for that one moment is a great place to start. Mm-hmm. And, and since this is a podcast where we explore the intersection of business and design, I have to ask you, what is is there a business value of emotional design? And if there is, how do how do I argue for it? You know, why should I as a designer spend time investing in what may seem to a business person like a luxury? You know, why should I mm-hmm. spend so much resources to make this moment so much better? It already works. Yeah. Uh, well, Sam Altman, who is the chairman of Y Combinator, which is a, an incubator that uh, has helped launch lots of major um, companies, um, including Airbnb. Snap, lots of others. Uh, he said it's a it's better to build something that a small number of users love than a large number of users like. Sam Altman's a businessman, and the reason why he holds this view is that he recognizes uh, if if a small number of people really love the product, they will act as your marketing team. They will evangelize your product. Um, when the product struggles inevitably, as you're trying to scale, maybe servers tip over. It's not as reliable. Um, They'll stick with you. When you need feedback to help refine that product, they're the ones who are going to be vocal and support you. Now, if someone's just like lukewarm about your product, they're probably not going to do any of those things. They are not going to stick around in tough times. They're not going to give you feedback. They're not going to tell others about it. You have to build a product that people are passionate about. And it doesn't have to be just like, I love it and it makes me feel joy, but this is a good product. I feel empowered. Um, uh, or this is a good product. It makes investing easier and it brings my fear down about, you know, saving for retirement. Um, it could be any number of, of reasons why people are passionate about it, but you've got to have that, that passion um, there. And, you know, the business case, there's lots of examples of where emotional design has been a game changer for, for large businesses. Um, and I can give you a, a, a close example of, you know, when I, uh, I used to work at MailChimp, I started the design team there. Um, and recently, um, I, should, I should say, at, at MailChimp, that's where many of these emotional design um, experiments started for, for me. And uh, that led to the first edition of my book and the second edition of my book, which is very much different, uh, which was partially written during the pandemic. Um, and addresses a lot of different types of complex emotions um, that that's, was inspired by what I learned at MailChimp. Um, they were just bought by Intuit uh, for $12 billion. And a big part, you know, Intuit has uh, their own connection to 
emotional design and, you know, being passionate about their customers um, that, you know, use this phrase design for delight over and over again. Um, I have some, some thoughts about that, which is maybe <laughs> for another show, but uh, so a big part of MailChimp's success is that word of mouth marketing, the passion that people have around it. It makes people feel competent, makes people feel cool yeah. um, to, to be able to market their own business. Slack is another great example, uh, sold for $27 billion to Salesforce. Um, and Slack is really driven by personality. So there are a lot of, of examples, product examples out there where emotional design has played a key role in building their business. Mm -hmm. It's really about building relationships with your customers and getting passionate customers to support your growth. Mm -hmm. So you said that Slack was built on personality. What do you mean by that? So Slack, especially in the early days, um, Slack felt very different than its primary competitor, which was HipChat. It was very, you know, clinical, stoic, Spartan, uh, whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, but Slack had this personality. It was very conversational in the language. Um, it has this open platform for where apps can tie in and apps uh kind of followed the lead of the early Slack designers. MetaLab did the original design and they intentionally designed with personality. Um, and so the app integrations follow that lead in bringing personality into that, that conversational communication. Um, so Slack felt very different than HipChat and HipChat ultimately went under. Atlassian ended up giving up on that, that product space and just invested in Slack mm -hmm. instead of, of uh, making another product like that. So if I'm trying to design for emotion, what, hmm, what percentage of my work should go on the brand side? Because these examples that you mentioned, you know, Slack and MailChimp, especially like MailChimp strikes me as a great brand where a lot of these things are connected to the brand, to this chimp, to the way... Um, software talks to me, you know, with a high five and so on. So what part of that is brand versus let's say UX or product design? Um, I think it, it sort of depends. Uh, there are some products that start with it baked in from the beginning. Would, all of those that we mentioned um, fit that bill. Headspace is another one where personality is, is such a key part of it. And it has to design for emotion because people – Approach, approach meditation with fear, uh, suspicion, like, is this going to help me? Uh, a lot of stress. So they have to sand off those sharp edges of those emotions. Um, and then there are some places where um, in the U.S. there's a product from Intuit called TurboTax. Mm -hmm. It's not highly personality brand driven, but there is emotional design along the way. There's a step where you have to let the let the software know if your spouse has passed away, and it responds in a very compassionate way. Um, and so that's not a brand thing. It's just you know what is the emotion of the moment. So it doesn't have to be as grandiose. It's not like if you're uh, you know working at a major corporation that you have to advocate for some brand overhaul. Um, what's the small thing that you could work on here that could uh, you know, make the product a little more sticky, maybe make the onboarding easier, 
make a person feel empowered that this software is is valuable um, and you want to use it more. It really depends on uh, what what product you're working on. So Aaron, I know we're running out of time, so I just have one final um, question on a lighter note. So um, maybe just share like a couple or three resources uh, for designers, just whatever you find interesting lately. It can be newsletters, it can be magazines, you know, whatever you just enjoy, whatever you, it is that you're enjoying lately. I think that's a nice way to to send our listeners into certain directions. Uh, well, so as we're recording this, uh, we're approaching some holidays here and, you know, various people celebrate different holidays, but I've always enjoyed that, uh, at the end of the year, there are a lot of web design kind of advent calendars where they give you like a, uh, technique a day, 24ways.org. If you haven't seen that, uh, go check it out. There's an archive of great stuff there. Um, I find the Smashing Magazine newsletters, uh, my friend Vitaly and uh, his team over there, they're always full of really great stuff. Um, but honestly, the things that I find most inspiring today are um, not really in the design field. I, I, I'm really curious about adjacencies because I find that that um, loops its way back into my work. Yeah. Um, the Dawn of Everything, which is a new book by the late David Graeber um, and David Wingrow. That's a really interesting book that I've uh, just recently started. It just came out, I think, this week. Um, but I love these big historical looks at humanity, our history, because I think it helps us see our time, um, our moment, uh, our privilege uh, for, for being alive right now. Um, I love those types of books. And I think in general, this is a great advice in like for careers and for life is like looking at adjacent areas. I don't remember where I heard this, but somebody somewhere sometime was talking about an approach. Uh, like, um, I, don't, yeah, I really don't know who it was, but it was somebody who from the outside looking in, you would say he or she is a genius um, or they are genius. But what he, what they said is that they actually don't see themselves as genius, but they just think about the same problems over and over again. And whatever they learn, they try to apply to the same problem. And then at one point, what you just come up with seems so unbelievable and crazy, but that person is just like so obvious because they apply everything they learn to the same problem. And I found that yeah. so fascinating. I was just trying to think think for myself, what are the problems I care about and I should do the same with? Yeah. I think, you know, for me, uh, the older I get, I just, I want to be more curious, um, and follow my curiosities down lots of rabbit holes because sooner or later, everything's connected and, uh, it, finding novel solutions to familiar problems, uh, is usually found by looking in unusual places. Thanks, Aaron. That was a blast. Maybe just as a last question, where can listeners find more about you and your work? Yeah, if you want to uh, learn more about me, AaronWalter.com. Um, it's kind of the basic stuff. You can learn more about the book and find a link to that. Um, and if you're interested in the podcast stuff that we talked about earlier, Reconsidering.org. 
and designbetter.com are the two podcasts that I host. Amazing. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So that's it in this episode. If you liked this conversation, you'll definitely enjoy Aaron's book, Designing for Emotion. So definitely look it up and get a copy. And if you want to learn more about business skills relevant for designers, head over to d.mba slash mini, where you can subscribe to a free seven-day email course, which will teach you a few basic business fundamentals for designers. Thanks again for listening and talk to you soon with a new episode. Bye-bye.